Hello, everyone. This is Premier Chess CEO, National Master Evan Rabin. I'm very excited to be here on our milestone 250th episode of the Premier Chess Podcast, where every week we interview great chess professionals, business coaches, attorneys, many others who have found their passion uh, in whatever it is that they do. Uh, this week, we have a very strong player, Grandmaster Vinay Bhatt, uh, who grew up in uh, the Bay Area and uh, currently lives uh, in the Bay Area. Um, I was actually talking to Vinay briefly before we uh, started recording uh, about if we ever actually met <laughs> uh, before, uh, which uh, we don't think we actually have. Um, that said, I'm, I'm sure if we looked at both of our histories, we've probably been at at least one tournament uh, at the same time all that together. Um, like, for instance, in 2011, I actually played two tournaments back to back in the Bay Area. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, the Northern California International uh, that Ted Castro ran, and then uh, oh, okay, Arun okay. and Ted together. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, actually, maybe then we, because uh, I, uh, I was, I didn't play that tournament, but I did come a couple of days just to watch some games and talk to some of the players who I knew there. Um, so maybe, maybe we cross paths there. Well, de de definitely a good chance. Yeah, I mean, it was a great time. I, I was actually. Staying with my friend Ray Kaufman, who was living there. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, was now uh, I think about an hour from Seattle, uh, something like that. But um, yeah, and then we played a, a Gwitchburg tournament after the Golden Gate Open. I think it was called, mm -hmm. uh, if I remember correctly. But um, anyway, uh, it, it's definitely great to connect. Um, you know, he, he's been around uh, for a while. Uh, he at one point became the youngest national master um, at 10 years and 176 days, uh, to be precise. Um, and, you know, at, at the time, uh, it, it was previously held by, you know, people like Bobby Fisher. So uh, kind of cool. It has been broken uh, since, you know, by Nakamura and Nip and Sam Savian, but um, still, uh, it's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty cool. So um, and then quite young at 15, he became uh, international master again, uh, something that was uh, the youngest ever at the time. Um, but by the way, when I, I was growing up in chess, I'm a couple of years younger than Benet. I did always see him, you know, in, in chess life and chess life for kids and, you know, the all pressman team, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I guess for, for one, uh, for those that don't know you, um, like myself, you know, all that well, uh, you know, what made you really get into chess and, uh, you know, how, how'd you get such a you know, quick start? No, um, th thanks Evan for having me on. Um, I got started actually, it was kind of random. Um, my mom taught my brother, my older brother and me actually, uh, and she was not a tournament player at all. She'd been taught by her dad. Um, and, uh, she she taught us partly because she enjoyed the game uh, and partly actually because uh, I, like it was something else for us to do um, in a way. Uh, and we started playing and um, pretty quickly, I think my brother and I both got hooked and she started taking us then to uh, public library classes. So there's um, classes every week uh, at a nearby public library um taught by Richard Shorman primarily and we ended up going there every Friday afternoon and that's kind of how we both got hooked um there's a local chess club called the uh Koltanowski Chess Club sh shortened usually to Colty um and used to play there every Thursday 
and that that's that's really how I got started. It it wasn't um it wasn't something that like my mom actually knew about in advance of like, hey, there are chess tournaments actually. Mm-hmm. Uh I think this was something that, you know, she thought was more of just a casual thing at first. And then she learned about um we could do all these other things. And then my dad learned how to play uh, a little bit later once he's, he was often like driving my brother and me to uh, different tournaments. And so um, at that point, it's like, you see enough chess, uh, you either feel like learning or um, it's almost uh, through osmosis. Um, you pick up some of the rules, the basics, stuff like that. So that's how I really got started. And um, I think from a young age, I like, I enjoyed playing. And I think that was like a big thing uh, that my parents saw that I enjoyed doing it. And so they just kept encouraging me um, as opposed to, um, yeah, there, there wasn't like a lot of pressure to play. Uh, there was always sort of encouragement to do other things as well. But um, I think the fact I enjoyed it was like a big thing. I I tried a bunch of other activities. Like I played soccer growing up. I didn't really like soccer. I played tennis. I really enjoyed tennis. Uh, so there were some things that like I dabbled in, I tried to play the violin, didn't really enjoy that, for example. So like tried a bunch of different things, um, and some of them stuck. So like chess definitely stuck. Um, but some of the others, like I still play tennis regularly now. So like, uh, I think it was that environment that I grew up in and that like got me into chess. So fast forward, you know, a bunch of years, uh, you know, you're, you're a strong rap master. Um, you know, frankly, I mean, look, a lot of the people that, you know, were in your time, you know, like Nakamura and and others, uh, you know, obviously are a little bit more well known in, in the chess world, at least today. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, because rightly so, they're, 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 you know, <laughs> you know, well, for one, I mean, Actually, in, it's interesting. The last time I saw Hikaru in person uh, in, in, in Florida back in 2019, uh, I did a big event with his stepfather, Sunil. Mm. Uh, we were out like at, at, at lunch afterwards. Uh, it was, yeah, he, Robert McClellan, and a couple other people. And he was like running back to like go stream. And at the time, I didn't, I've never heard of Twitch at the time. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, why is he doing that? That seems so weird, like almost like antisocial. <laughs> But I, I didn't even realize even back then he was like getting, you know, several thousand people watching him at once and making a lot of money uh, from it, you know? And I, I was like, and then literally a few months later it was COVID and then I was like, oh, wow, everyone's streaming and he's wildly successful. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, you, 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 you kind of, you know, half left the, the, the chess world starting a big, uh, you know, studying at Stanford, starting a big, you know, data science career. Um, so, I, you know, I was just talking to a high schooler yesterday, for instance, uh, at one of our school programs, uh, you know, who's back in our, so we actually have a middle school program and high school program at the school back mm-hmm. in middle school. He was very active in chess and he stopped by the club uh, on Tuesday. And I said, oh, why don't, you know, why don't you get back into chess? You know, because I could tell he was really liking it. But he, at the same time, I think was, you know, distracted with college and everything else. Um, this is someone who's not, you know, nearly as, as, as experienced or, or strong, but, uh, you know, same kind of idea. So what made you, uh, what, what was your journey like, uh, you know, either being like a strong grandmaster and pursuing norms and everything? I mean, not norms, but, uh, you know, 
getting your ELO up and titles yeah, and yep. everything, uh, you know, versus, you know, developing a career, you know, in data science? Um, actually, so like my, my first thought was actually not to, uh, like once I, I got to international master um, by the end of high school. So like you said, um, I was like in 10th grade or so when I got to international master, but I got a little bit stuck again after that. I'd been stuck before as well, but um, I didn't make a lot of progress my last two years of high school. My rating didn't change a whole lot. Um, and I went to Berkeley first, actually, UC Berkeley first for undergrad. And I largely stopped playing chess for those four years. Um, but even though I had stopped playing chess, I like, I didn't stop following some chess. And then I got brought back into it through um, a couple of friends, David Proust and Andy Lee. Uh, we founded sort of a chess center in the, the Berkeley area called East Bay Chess. It was open basically seven days a week. We would run tournaments, exhibition, lectures, stuff like that. Um, and that, for my final two years at Cal, kind of brought me back into the chess world a little bit. Um, and then what I ended up doing was I, uh, while I was working, so I was working in consulting for a little bit, uh, I would basically take um, a month off every summer and I would go play uh, some some tournaments, typically in Europe. So um, these were all GM norm possible, like these were open tournaments, but where GM norms are possible. And so that's how I ended up getting to the GM title. Um, but for me, I think the decision to go to college or like pursue a career at first, it was um, in high school, I thought it was like a no brainer. I didn't think that I was so good that, um, hey, look, like world champion was immediately on the radar or anything like that. I was an international master, but like, I mean, uh, while I was maybe good for the time, it like didn't suggest that I was going to be a strong professional player. Um, and so I figured a degree would help sort of be a like good option value um, in case like in case I do go decide to play chess, um, that that'll be a nice fallback. Uh, at the time, too, by, by the end of high school, I was actually a little bit tired of chess, too. I think I because my results weren't so good, I was like getting a little bit more frustrated with playing. Um, and then once I got to Grandmaster, I partly decided to go play uh, because of the Sanford Fellowship. Um, and that that goes to at the time, it was like one person every year under the age of 25 in the U.S. Um, now, I think they they handed out more and. The year that I got it, uh, Arena Crush in New York also um, received it. So I think ours was the first year where they split the award. Um, now it's, I think, a little bit more common, just given how many talented young players there are in the country. Um, but then after the Stanford ran out, I was, again, I was honestly probably a little bit burned out on chess. I put my put, put probably a little too much pressure on myself for results. And so um, when I got when I decided to work in what's now data science, um, actually, like it wasn't a sure thing at all. Like I came back uh, after like three years of playing and um, got a job as like entry level marketing analyst uh, at a company here in San Francisco. And um, at the time, I wasn't sure actually, like if I don't like this, maybe I'll go back to chess. But I wanted to give it a shot just because I I put in the time for like my undergraduate degree and whatnot. Um, and then I ended up really enjoying it. So um, I've only played one classical tournament since then mm -hmm. uh, in the last uh, 13 years or so. So, yep. 
Yeah, well, you, you raise a lot of, you know, interesting ideas. You know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, dealing with the pressure could be, you know, a, a, a little bit difficult, you know, people are yeah. just growing chess. Uh, you know, it, it, it's great, you know, and uh, one thing that I, you know, did notice, uh, just, you know, quickly looking at your history is you did uh, a few months ago, actually do pretty well in a, in a blitz tournament, you know, at the mechanic. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, so, you, and it, it's interesting too. I, I forget who it was. I think I was talking to, uh, actually, I do know who it was now that I think about it. My, my, my good friend, uh, who actually now lives in the Bay Area, Sviata Zoria. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. No. Yeah. Um, but I, I played I him a bunch of times. Kind of making fun of him a little bit, like a couple of years ago when I, because I, you know, I was asking him about his his journey a little bit and you know how how he how much chess he studies. He's like, oh, I barely study chess anymore, you know. And I'm like, so how much do you look? And he's like, oh, I spend like an hour or two, you know, oh, looking wow. at okay. like a day, you know, looking at all the the, the top games and, and keeping updated. I'm like, honestly, three hours. I don't remember the last time I studied two hours of chess a day. Yeah. Yes, compared to the ten hours. A day that he spent, you know, when he was like really becoming a grandmaster, uh, it's not a lot. But truth is, ninety-five percent of players, sorry, ninety-nine percent of players, <laughs> including myself, have never studied ten hours of chess in a day. No, the, yeah, <laughs> you know, so everything is is very relative, uh, of course. No, for sure. Um, I would say that, like, so I played the I played that blitz tournament earlier this year. That was like a charity event for the Berkeley Chess School. Um, so, I, I mean, it was reasonably strong. I think I was like the fourth seed. Sam Shanklin was like the top seed. Christopher Yu was like the second seed. Um, and uh, actually, a few years ago, I played a rapid tournament in San Francisco. Actually, Viad was there. Uh, we played. Um, I think I, I, Caruana uh, was the top seed. So um, Fabi won the won the event. And actually, I, I think that was the only game I lost in the tournament. Um uh, Zviad and I played, we first played actually in like a 97 world youth championship, I think. Uh, so I played him a couple of times in like world youth and world junior championships. Um, I noticed he, he moved to the Bay area a little while ago, but, um, I haven't seen him in person in a while. Uh, Fabiano? I, sorry. Fabiano moved to the Bay area. Oh, no, uh, Zviad, Zviad, sorry. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah Cause he, he, you know, yep. he moved to the Bay area, think about, I don't know like eight years ago yeah I, I think it's been a while because he um he started playing for i think the san jose team in like the u.s chess league and the pro chess league uh but i haven't haven't actually seen him in a while um I, yeah for me chess study now is uh so like i did uh i tend to read some articles from like chess 24 stuff like that so obviously like the world championship match it just was held um i I would say like I play, I don't play online blitz anymore. Um, but every so often, probably like a couple times a year, I'll I'll play like one of these, you know, short blitz events, something like that. Um took a break for the pandemic, but I I there's some touch with chess. Um, even if I'm not playing, it's not like I'm uh completely disconnected from like the chess world and what's going on. Uh, but Actual, well, like, I do but, think you know, if you're a chess player, you know, especially such like a strong player, you know, you're you're, you're a chess player for life. You know, hundred percent like, active yeah. or not, you know that that that's different. But um, yeah, you know, and it's and he, look, I know Sviad too. He's not nearly as active as as he was, uh, you know, before as well. I think he's still, as far as I know, I haven't talked to him in a while. He's still teaching, you know, in the in the Bay Area in San Jose. Um, 
good friends with him and his sister Anna, who uh, mm, okay. worked with me at Chess in the Schools. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, for sure. So, um. But um. So yeah. So so tell me a little bit more just about you know your development uh, as a kid yourself. Um. You know, like to hear that you know you made master. You know, and at, at ten, right, is still fine. It's been broken officially, you know, a few times, but still, it's uh you know, obviously very impressive, uh, you know, right. Um, you know, I made master when I was 20. Um, in fact, a, a group of kids asked me the other day, when did you make master? Yeah. You know, I told them 20, you know, but I, I made a big actually caveat. And I said, there's kids like this kid, Tane, who I'm oh, yeah. sure yep. obviously yeah. heard of, um, Tani, uh, Tani, uh, yeah. who, uh, you know, literally learned how to move the pieces. And then, you know, like two years, he was very quickly. Happy. Yeah you know, which was like pretty crazy to me. Um, so, you know, and the other day I was showing a game where I lost to a nine-year-old, uh, you know, who's around 1900 now. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. You know, obviously yeah. pretty strong. Um, but of course they, they, they didn't even pay attention to 1900. They were like, Oh my God, you lost to a nine-year-old. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? Look, I have to put ego aside. He played pretty well. Yeah. You know, yes, I was actually winning at one point, but okay, you, you know, it happens. <laughs> and of course, consistency is, is 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 the biggest thing. Uh, of course, right? But um yeah, you know, they're much stronger than uh, you know, some of my opponents. So um I guess what recommendations do you have for you know young kids mm -hmm. who uh you know are just scared of, of of much better players you know and and right because i'm sure you know a lot of other kids you know were they had no idea they could become so good you know so quickly no for sure um i i think it's like it's a good question because for me i feel like there were a couple things i studied um as a little kid but then also from like a attitude standpoint i think i felt okay with losing sometimes um I actually, especially as a kid, like almost wish I could like regain that in some way of like the, like the nonchalance about like the, the result. Um, you play the game because like you enjoy the game, not because you're concerned about like when you're losing all the time. Um, certainly I did like win some games, but I lost a ton of games like as a kid. Um, for me, I think, uh, especially in chess now, actually like you know, you, you look at sort of like, I don't know, one of us plays the nine-year-old um, and you think there's like a big age mismatch. And so therefore, like it should be uh, like should be an easy win for us. But it's not like a boxing match where it's like the size of the person matters. Right. right. It's um, it's not like when you if you're playing a little kid who's like, you know, you're a master and you're playing like a little kid chances are this little kid is actually pretty good. <laughs> um, and so it's like not going to be a walk in the park. Uh, I think for me, there was something that clicked about sort of some of the things about like peace coordination and tactics and things like that. And that's what really got me that that's what I really worked on as a little kid. I didn't learn a lot of openings uh, or like the openings I learned would be often laughed at by like, um, I think, expert master on up kind of players. Uh, I used to play like the elephant gambit is black. Hmm. Um, I used to play all like I was playing gambits with both colors. Sometimes I would do things that were like, I, I wasn't, I was interested in getting out of the opening to just a position and then just playing from there. 
Um, and so uh, I do think though that like being okay with losing sometimes and then using that as fuel to like kind of get better um, matters a lot. Uh, it's totally different sort of, um, you know, environment and totally different sort of pressure situation. But I don't know if you saw what uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo said about like the Bucks losing in the playoffs. Like, I feel like it made a lot of sports I'm not, news I'm not, I'm not a big sports person. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, but I think, I think the reporter asked him of like, Hey, like you guys didn't win the championship this year is the season a failure. And like, okay. I think as a pro athlete, maybe the, you could debate like what the mentality should be, but he was like, basically it's, it's not a failure. Um, plenty of people like star players don't win every year, but it's a failure kind of more if you don't use it to get better. So like figure out what you need to do next year. Um, and I think for me, a lot of the game, like the games I lost were the ones you could, I could learn from of like, what tactics did I miss? What did I not understand? Um, so I think if, if you look back at like even my early USCF tournament history, I would guess I lost like a hundred games very quickly. Um, yeah. Like I won maybe a hundred games quickly as well, but like I lost a hundred games pretty quickly too. Um, but use that to try and get better. And I think that was one of the habits that I, I learned relatively early on of like, look at your own games to figure out where you made a mistake. And then hopefully you learn from that. So speaking of opening repertoire, um, it's funny, honestly, I, as you were saying that, I actually just wrote down like a literally basically an outline for a blog post. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Gambits that I used to play as as a kid. Yeah. Uh, King's Gambit, the Evans Gambit, the Gordon yeah. Gambit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, it'll be a fun blog post to write. Yeah, literally just inspired me. Uh, you know, I, I learned most of those actually from uh, my former coach and currently good friend, Alan Cantor, who did not. Oh, yeah. Okay. As well. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Um, of course. So um yeah but um so you know and then i used to play like the scandinavian i, I kind of got like killed uh you know i, I did as well I started yeah. playing in uh adult tournaments actually um and not even against that strong players you know i was like 1400 and i would play 1800 and just get crushed <laughs> um but then then i'd have six scandinavian um mm -hmm. not that it's necessarily losing but it's you know it's probably somewhat suspect um you know, and then I, I switched to the Carl Khan, uh, which was okay, okay. A, a lot more, uh, a, a lot more safe, uh, and, and, and a lot good. more stable. Yeah. Um, so stable. Thank you. <laughs> good word. But, um, so yeah, so how, how did your, I mean, I imagine, uh, you know, being a grandmaster, you probably were not playing the elephant gambit, uh, anymore, uh, and things like that. So how, how did, how did you actually like build your opening repertoire to become, um, you know, a strong grandmaster. I, um, I, so I, I started to, I got stuck once, uh, at national master. I got stuck for like over two years, I think. So like I got to national master in like three and a half years in the next two years. Like, if you look at my rating chart, it was like basically a flat line. Um, I was playing a lot. I just was not doing anything, uh, or making progress officially. Um, so I, I moved from playing gambits to uh, at that time I started I picked up the Scandinavian um, and uh, I started to play probably a little bit more sort of not mainline openings but uh, I used to play the Rosalimo and Bishop B five Sicilians for example 
the King's Indian attack a lot from white from the white side. Uh, I started working with Gregory Kaidanov, and um, he taught me to play the French and the semi-Slav is black. Uh, and so that became my repertoire through sort of my IM years. Um, to, to push to GM, actually, uh, I did switch my opening repertoire from E4 as white to D4. Um, mm -hmm. But that actually, I was playing the Trumpowski. Um, everything against D4, Knight F6, I would play Bishop G5, the Trumpowski. D4, D5, I would play mostly sidelines. So um, there was, I think there was one repertoire book that I used. Uh, um, I want to say it was actually, I, I looked at the, there are two books I used. One, I think, was by Richard Palliser. It was like a D4, D5 repertoire book. And then there was a book on the Trumpowski by Peter Wells. Um, and that was like basically my entire white repertoire. Um, so I was still playing some certainly not mainline openings, uh, not gambits either, but like not mainline openings. To get better as a grandmaster though, I found that I needed to start playing some more openings and, um, or I felt like I needed to, and I needed to experience more kind of positions because I started to re recognize that um, more and more of my middle games were reaching positions that could come from another opening. And so you like, you see something in the Rui Lopez that really looks like an Eidorf, or you see something in a semi-Slav that actually looks like a Karo Khan, for example, or mm -hmm. something like that. And so I started to play uh, as black against E4. I added E4, E5, and I started to play the Rui Lopez as black. As black against D4, I started to play the Slav and the Nimzo Indian, uh, Queen's Gambit declined, those kinds of openings. And then as white in D4, I started to play like... Not quite main lines, because I never, um, I have, like, I had trouble remembering theory. I still actually do. Um, so uh, I was, I would still play, like, secondary lines, typically, but um, nothing quite as far out there as, like, the full-on gambits I used to play. Like, I, I grew up playing the Evans Gambit, Scotch Gambit is white. Um, moved away from that to, like, the Trumpowski, then to, like, more solid lines, but never quite main absolute yeah well main i think lines. i think transitions are important um yeah you know funny funny little anecdote about the evans gambit uh you might know grandmaster michael rhodes wrote a book on oh, yeah. it uh, yeah. years ago uh and uh i was actually playing michael road at the marshall a few weeks ago uh we ended up drawing the game actually um nice. got four and no and we we tied for second with three and a half but <laughs> whatever um but you know before the game this kid was like oh you're you're evan you should play evan's gambit i'm like he wrote a book on it no <laughs> <laughs> they're like what i'm like no he legit wrote a book on it <laughs> it might be might be interesting to watch but it, yeah like might be a tough person to play it against so you know i'm like no i i, 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 don't, I don't think so uh, <laughs> uh yeah and so we played as you know typical time and all and you know mm, okay slightly better position and he offered a draw and then i was in so all right you know uh, kind of impromptu I'll, I'll ask a question about this because this is something that i think a lot of players you know struggle with yeah, uh, you know, it's when a higher rated player offers a draw. You know? Oh yeah. So, yep. Um, look, I, I was in a predicament where I, you know, I, I knew that if we drew, we would either tie for first or you know at least get second. You know, sure. if, I, if I lose, I get you know nothing. Uh, you know, pre pre pretty much. Um, you know, I played Michael Road about, about quite a bit. You know, about yeah. twenty games probably. Oh wow. Okay. Rated games. You know, playing at the Marshall over the years. Um, yeah, I know his whole family as well, of course, but um 
you know, I think I have about maybe 10 draws against him now. And no, 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 no. Uh, I don't know. Probably about like five draws against him. Like no, no, no wins. Okay. Um, in fact, one thing I'm still trying to do is beat my first grandmaster. In okay. Okay. I beat Sam Shanklin in one blitz game in college. Okay. Okay. <laughs> don't worry. It, it, like, I think persistence is often the key. Out so. of many, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, you know. Um, and I do want to obviously ask you a little bit about you, you teaching him uh, as well. But um, so look, a, a lot of players, right? They see a high rated player offer a draw. They're instantly trying to take it. Uh, me, the opposite. Uh, in fact, Grandmaster Max Delugi, who's been on the podcast, likes the same, right? If, you're ch- if your opponent offers you something in chess, whether it be a draw offer, a yeah. piece, anything, your initial reaction should be, why do they want to give it to me? <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you're playing someone higher rated. You know, at the, at the U.S. Open, actually, two years ago, I was playing against a guy who I beat once before. I'm a little higher rated than him. I offered him a draw. He almost instantly took it. Yes, he was in time pressure, but okay, was definitely winning. Um, and then I kind of laughed actually when I ran into him in the lobby twenty minutes later, and he was like, "Haven't I turned on the engine? I, I I I was completely winning. I shouldn't have taken it." I was like, "Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I offered. Why do you think I offered you a drop?" <laughs> <laughs> so you know, of course, on you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this okay, grandmasters offered me a draw, Michael Rhodes, you know, clearly stronger than me uh you know why uh sure. you know and then sure enough I, honestly i thought i was in a position where i was like plus one plus 1.5 turns okay. out i looked at the computer and i was only slightly better you know actually. oh okay okay um you know and uh but yeah what what, what advice do you have for you know draw offers when someone high rated you offers you a draw you know etc et i i think for me i'm um i probably think the same as what like delugi was saying is that like i question like why sometimes um sometimes that didn't work to my benefit but like I think as a kid again I was okay with losing some games like I wasn't chasing the rating um in general like uh and even as like a IM or GM I I would turn down like draws that sometimes I would kick myself for later so like uh 2008 U.S. championship qualifier it's the last round and I'm playing uh I have the white pieces against Grandmaster Becerra. Um, and he was a higher rated grandmaster than me at the well, time. I used to maybe. see all the time, by the way, when he lived in New York for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, I think he was probably at the time, he was probably like 70 points higher rated than me, maybe 70, 80 points. Um, I had the white pieces were on board one in the final round. And uh I I outplay him in a King's Indian and I win a pawn, and he offers me a draw. He's got some compensation, but it's like not, it's still cl- I think we both fully agreed that like I had the better position. Um, I turned down the draw and ended up losing the game. Now, like a draw would have guaranteed my qualification for like the U.S. closed championship that year. Wow. But I was like, no, no, no. Like my position's better. I just wanted to win this game and I'm going to win the qualifier outright um, instead of tying for first. I ended up losing the game and as a re- I just missed out on qualifying as a result. Uh, so that was like... Um, I tended not to take too many draws against higher rated players just because, um, occasionally I would use that. Like if I was, I, I sometimes offer draws to lower rated players too, when my position was like getting pretty rickety. So like I was worried about something. Um, 
but often I would also use that against sort of my opponents. I, I certainly played on in positions where like call it 22, 2300s would offer me a draw where they were better. Um, and I took their draw offer as like a sign that, Hey, maybe they're not so confident in their position. Um, and I would sometimes roll the dice, uh, on that of, um, Hey, should I play on or not? So my advice in general would be, yes, like think about why they're offering you a piece or like a draw offer. Um, but some of it comes down to like, what are your motivations? And like, if you're playing for fun, if you're playing to learn, then like take your chances, like basically you like you you'll get to play Michael road again. Um, but like, like we want to get that point on the board. So like at some point we'll have to like push through, I think. Um, yeah, I think you, you, you raised a valid point and look, basically, I mean, yeah, yeah. For instance, two days ago, I was teaching a class, uh, a middle school elective at, at one of our programs, Chris Church. Yeah. And, you know, I basically said, look, my, in short, my philosophy of drawers, never take or accept them. <laughs> right. That's like very much in short. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, look, there's, there's acceptance to everything. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, I, I remember at the World Open one year, actually, I typed for a second that year in the 2200 section. Um, you know, I literally just had a terrible headache in, in round six, you know, and I, and I honestly, I knew that I, I would not play very well. Yeah. And I, I was just very grateful that my opponent didn't know that I had a headache and, and he accepted my draw. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think and, and, there, there's exceptions for like, call it like last round where you maybe win a tournament. Um, I've taken a draw before where like I had lost the first couple rounds of the tournament and I was playing, uh, like strong grandmaster, he was 2,700 plus at the time, but Crow, Etienne Bacro. And um, I was better, but he offered me a draw and I was like, I was low on the clock and I was like, I just need to get on the board in this tournament. And then I can, like some of the pressure will again be off. So I think there are some cases like that where you have to know like how you're feeling that day, what your mental state is. But in general, if you're feeling good, like I would say, um, yeah, like, play and, and hopefully learn from whatever the result is. But there, there are cases where like, yeah, if you're not feeling well, you're going to be bugging yourself like crazy that, you know, maybe could have won that game. Yep. No, I, I still remember very well the actually Mark Grandmaster Mark Paragua, who actually works with us. Um, oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. You know, I, I remember the first time I, I really became friends with him was years ago when I played a tournament against a, a tournament game against him. Uh, so it was like back in 2006, shortly after. OK, yeah. The, the u.s uh and, and i you know i'll never forget you know i had a much better position a winning position in a tournament game against him uh he actually offered a, basically a draw he, he repeated the move the, the the position repeated twice i had a okay chance there would be three times um and you know i i vividly remember my feelings that day you know do i take it do i get yeah. a draw against a grandmaster you know which i could pretty much lock in or do i like keep playing um and and i said no this is finally my this is my first time to be the grandmaster in, in in a game um sure enough i hung a piece and 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 lost in the time scramble um but i remember we we actually hung out afterwards and then his uh brother john who i'm still good friends with today um you know many years later uh john's daughter by the way uh is, is now very very much an up-and-coming player megan paragua she's about oh, nice okay on her way to master yeah um, but um but yeah you know like even to this day right a small part of me is like oh i should have taken a draw but 
no, I shouldn't have. You know, it's still the right thing to do. Uh, of course, I, I was actually talking to Mark about this like recently, uh, even though it was like many years ago. So um, yeah, just just something to consider. But um, so I, I want to transition a little bit and talk a little bit about your career. Um, you know, outside of chess. Sure. Um, you know, you, you're, you, you've been a data scientist, uh, you were at Chip It for a while, and now I think you're at, uh, like, a, a fuzzy, um, it's a pet, pet telemedicine company. Yeah. Yeah. Pet, pet, pet medicine company. So, um, t tell, tell us about your, your data science career a little bit and how, you know, chess might've, uh, you know, helped you there at all. Sure. Um, so I've, I've been in sort of the data space officially for call it the past, like 12, 13 years. Um, and worked in sort of uh, marketing, ad tech kind of places. Uh, Shipped is a grocery delivery platform, similar to say an Instacart. Um, and then now I'm at Fuzzy, which is a pet telemedicine startup. So we do digital consults for cats and dogs. Um, on the data side, I think, so I studied statistics and political economy in undergrad. And so like the data side uses a little bit more of the stats background. Um, I, I found sort of the problems really interesting. It, it feels like you're investigating a bunch of things, you're problem solving all the time, which is what I kind of enjoy doing. Um, then I, you mentioned this earlier, but like I took some graduate work, uh, coursework at Stanford uh, in the machine learning program. And that's how I got into more of like the ML side of data science about a decade ago. Um, for me, I think the chess comes into play Sometimes there's benefits in terms of like focus and concentration, um, but some of it also comes down to, I, th I think I've gotten better at recognizing like how to prioritize some of my time and understand what kind of like, when you're investigating a data problem, there's like a bunch of different reasons for why something might be going on. Um, and kind of like you're calculating chess variations, right? There's like a million legal moves, but like, you and I would probably not consider most of the legal moves in a position because we've seen some positions before. You recognize, well, actually, these are some of the patterns that we can take advantage of. Um, and so I think that's where actually like some of that prioritization and like narrowing of the, like what could be a really complex problem. I think actually when you're a beginner at chess, you start to, you, you almost like you're considering every legal move because you don't know where to start. And it's until... It's only once you start building up some patterns and like you've got some reps in that you can say, well, actually, no, like bringing a knight out here or like attacking that pawn, that kind of thing, gaining that tempo makes a lot of sense for me. Um, and I think in the data space, there's there's some stuff there where I would say that like, yeah, I think I reject some like probably unfruitful paths or unlikely to succeed explanations. Um a little bit more quickly as a result. But in general, I would say like, uh, you know, like my chess playing up to a certain point probably helps my general sort of logical thinking and, and things like that, prioritization. Uh, but at some point, if, you know, you're studying, I don't know, you're studying eight hours a day and it's like on opening theory, you're probably not like learning anything useful for like the business world. So like there's like a lot of things, there's probably like uh, marginal returns of like the more you study, the less likely it translates to another space. Fair enough. So in terms of development, uh, we have a question actually from John Russell, who's one of our previous podcast guests. Oh, sure. He actually writes uh, some interesting books about paranormal activity. Okay. Uh, but um, did you learn more from study or from playing? 
in general? In chess specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, that's or a good question. Business, but I think primarily in, in chess. No, no, I, I, it's a good question. I think um, I would probably say, I feel like I learned a lot more while playing at times as a kid. I wasn't, I enjoyed playing more than studying, especially as a kid. That flipped a little bit as I got older. Um, and I, I think I understood a little bit better how to work on chess at times or how to study. Uh, but now I, I would probably say at this point, like um, you do need to practice everything that you're doing. And one of the things I think you can do as part of studying is basically play like practice games. And that was something that I, I made like a lot of use of um, as a GM, especially or getting to GM, um, both kind of phases where I would play out positions that um, either like full on games or there's a study position and we would just play it out with like a clock. And so that may be the best of both worlds because um, when I was just studying, sometimes I would just passively read stuff and like the information washes over and it's like in one ear out the other sometimes, but by actually forcing myself to play uh, even during like a study session, that might have been sort of the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I've been uh, actually, I'm I'm sure just it's not random that your uh, Bay Area friends who uh, do the chess dojo. Uh, oh yeah, yep, have yep. Said very similar things. I know you've been, you know, part of that community. Oh um, no, okay. For, um, no, I, I think Jesse, David, so, like, there's. Um, that was one thing that uh, when we were living together, we actually didn't do that as much. Uh, when we were studying, we did pure studying. We would talk about positions. Um, I don't think we played as many practice games or like played out as many positions with a clock with each other. Uh, but I like I, I definitely agree with them on that, that I think sometimes it's 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 a good way to get both in one. Yeah, well, I, I've been listening actually to actually their podcast quite a bit and other podcasts as, as well. Um, it's just one thing I kind of thought of myself in the last few yeah. months. I'm running a chess podcast. I should listen to others uh, as well. So, um, but, you know, and, and that's one thing I've actually been doing, you know, I've been studying openings and then I'll, you know, either sometimes even just play the computer, you know. Oh, yeah. and, yep. and, and, I did that a ton yeah. as a kid. I, I played hundreds of games against chess master, later Fritz, um, stuff like that, where I like, I used to play a lot on ICC, um, kind of blitz games, bullet, like whatnot. I, I would just get practice in a way. So like um, that, that's why I think, especially as a kid, I, I played more than I studied. Um, but maybe as I got older, I better understood how to study. Amazing. So in terms of, uh, you know, your, you know, coaching, um, you know, you, you, you've obviously coached uh, at least one very well-known player, uh, Grandmaster Sam Shankland, who I, as you know, went to, to Brandeis with. Um, what was it like coaching Sam before he became, uh, you know, such a big superstar? No, uh, so I, I knew Sam when he was probably actually even before he was a teenager, uh, but he started with some of the other uh, East Bay chess um, people I mentioned earlier. So I think Andy Lee probably taught him first. Uh, and then he, he moved on sort of through me, David Proust, and then Josh Friedel, uh, over the years. Um, Josh was in the Bay area for a while and, um, Sam, like he started playing a little bit later than most other, like, you know, strong players now, right? Like if you look at his peer group, 
in call it the top 20, 30, 40 in the world, like most of them probably started when they were like five or six years old or something. That's when they learned how to play. I think Sam probably only learned after he was 10, like maybe he was 11 or so uh, when he learned how to play. But um, he certainly had some obvious talent. Uh, I think teaching him was actually really useful for me because uh, I think in teaching somebody, you start to like, you solidify what sometimes is like intuitive for yourself. You have to learn how to explain to somebody else. And um, so actually teaching Sam was, I, I think like, pretty beneficial to me. Like, I want to say that he got better too. I think he, he did gain a few hundred rating points while we were working together for a few years. Uh, but I think even though I wasn't playing, I think it was useful for me just to see somebody who was so enthusiastic about the game and like his hunger for chess meant that like, I also had to work harder as a teacher to like, almost like keep up with new material, uh, understand how to explain things better to him, um, things like that. So, uh, He's still somebody who I, I, I see and hang out with um, every so often here. Um, but yeah, like I, I want to say I helped him as a teacher for a few years, uh, but like I definitely know he actually helped me even though he was a student. Hmm. Yeah, well, that, that, that's an interesting point. And, uh, you know, a lot of people like don't start teaching chess because they yeah. think, you know, it's going to hurt their performance, uh, you know, and, and not help their own career. Yes, I mean, that's somewhat true if you're teaching, you know, second grade beginners. Sure. Uh, but, you know, even then, I, I think you could definitely, you know, keep one thing on one side and then one thing yeah. on one side. And, and Sam, you know. Sam actually still teaches, I think, uh, some strong players. He doesn't take on all students, but um, there's like a certain level of rating that he's looking for, but also kind of an interest level and like hunger for chess, too. So, um yeah, and I, I actually um, was just going to mention, actually, I, I was just listening to his appearance on Ben Johnson's. Oh, yeah, 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 just last week, I think, yeah, yep. And, uh, you know, that's one thing he talked about a lot, you know, actually, you know, how he, he does exactly, as you said, you know, take a limited uh, amount of students. Uh, and actually, the last time I saw Sam in person, uh, a while ago, actually, five years ago, I think, uh, you know, in, in New York, uh, you know, we went out to dinner and, you know, and he was telling me, look, I charge 300 an hour. Yeah. That's what I do. You know, whoever wants it. Great. Whoever doesn't want it. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I'm going to take on a, a, you know, a, a really nice caliber of, of, of students. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to learn with them. You yeah. Know? And he said, you know, and he was doing his chessable course, you know, he was also yeah. learning himself, you know, Rick and games. Um, so you know, I actually, to be honest, like almost feel bad sometimes when I'm doing that with students. You know, even yesterday I was teaching a private student. Uh, by the way, I mean, the, actually these two brothers who are honestly not even tournament players yet. But at the same time, I was going over uh, actually the game that Chris Yu lost, uh, unfortunately. In the, oh, yesterday. Okay. In the tournament yesterday. Yeah. Which, by the way, was a wild game. I don't know if you saw it. It was like his opponent sacked a queen. Man. I mean. Not oh, real okay. Sacrifice. If he took the queen, it would have been mate and one, but still yeah. a, a, a crazy game, uh, you know, actually. But um, so, yeah, but, you know, th there's no reason you can't learn with students. Yeah. Um, you know, Agreed. similarly, actually, Casa Corley, uh, who I've known a, a, a while, um, you know, said something on a chess experience podcast about the same kind of thing, you know, that he learned, you know, with, uh, you know, some of his students, uh, not necessarily like two uh you know his, his, his students no i i think there are a few other um i taught at east bay chess center like both 
I, I taught more openly because like that was how we largely supported the club. Sam was one of the students. Um, I worked briefly with Daniel Naroditsky for a little while while he was an IM. Um, that was also like probably, uh, I know he made GM soon afterwards, but I was not his primary coach. So like, I don't want to, uh, I, I can't take credit for that, but um, I do think some of our work helped me as well. Um, and then even before that, it like, I think one of the stronger students I worked with when I was in high school, Matthew Ho, uh, he won some national championships. He went to the world youth representing the U S um, and that work, I think that was my first time teaching anybody. And like, I was, I was really disorganized as a teacher. Um, but then as I, as I taught more people, like I got a little bit more organized about like, okay, what do I go over with them? Um, cause the first time I was a teacher, I was like, we'll go over whatever I'm doing. So, um, which may not have been the right thing for them. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. So, um, and, and then in, in terms of your own coaching, you know, I know you worked with, uh, Grandmaster Kaidanov, who's, yeah. uh, you know, one of the more famous chess teachers and players, uh, you know, obviously for, you know, many years, um, you know, what, what was that like? And is there any like, you know, big lessons that he taught you that, uh, you know, kind of helped get you to where you are today? I, I like, I learned a ton from him. He, he helped unblock me from being uh 2200 for a while. I think I mentioned I got stuck for a few years. Um, and actually almost immediately once I started working with him, I think he diagnosed some of my, like the reasons why I was stuck, hmm. um, rebuilt my entire repertoire. Our, our lessons were interesting because so, I mean, this was late nineties uh, what we would do is we would actually call each other on the phone with the chessboard in front of us. And we would just go over chess for like an hour. Um, it was one hour a week. He's, uh, he lives in Kentucky. I was in San Jose, California at the time. Um, and so we'd just be on the phone, uh, sucking up the landline basically like, right. This wasn't even a mobile phone. So like, um, can't get other calls while we're on the phone, all of that. Uh, we never switched to ICC actually. So like we could have done that at some point. Um, had like a true online lesson, but um, he, I think there are a couple of things that he taught me that um, I probably, I took heart some of it right away, but then I only recognized some of the lessons later on, actually. Um, I think one of the things that he wanted me to work on was my calculation skills uh, that I, I didn't follow as much when he was training me. Um, he wanted me to pay a little bit more attention to the opening phase. Uh, and that I did try to do more often. Um, so uh, I would often play opening moves on an autopilot, almost regardless of what like my opponent was doing. Um, and so like, I, I missed a lot of opportunities or ran into trouble that way. Uh, I think stylistically, he also understood like what my motivations for playing chess were and like made some decisions for me that, I think were the right ones, but I didn't understand why they were the right ones at the time. So like he, he understood that I was spending a lot of time at school and on academics. And so like he decided, okay, I'm not going to teach him the Sicilian because he's not going to have time to remember all of that, all the theory. So instead he taught me the French. Um, and there are a few things like that, where I think he chose a good repertoire for me. Um, and there are some of those things that I think I, I recognized probably later rather than right in the moment. I, I don't know that I was actually like the best student. Um, I, I wasn't like really great about doing some of my chess homework to what you asked earlier. I enjoyed playing often more than studying. Uh, and so like, I don't know that um, 
I'm pretty sure if you asked him, you, you, I probably wasn't his best student uh, from like doing the homework kind of perspective, uh, but he, he was hugely valuable. Um, outside of that, so before that, I had two coaches. One was Richard Shorman. One was a local master, Sibeli Polovets. Um, he was like 2200, hasn't played tournament, I'm, I'm sure, in at least like two or three decades. Uh, then after Kaidanov, I never had a formal coach again. So I um, took a couple lessons with Yermolinsky, took a few lessons with Lev Sakis. But outside of that, um, never had a formal trainer after that. Yeah, well, I mean, look, some people are self-educated, but uh, having a coach obviously helps. Uh, no, it helps. Uh, like, I think there's a lot I could have learned from somebody else. But um, yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't understand at the time. I thought like I was getting better on my own. And so that that felt like enough. So. Yeah, well, look, a lot of it is, is accountability, but you can learn, you know, obviously oh, you true. Know, yeah. as well. Um, you know, I actually learned with uh, Grandmaster Landy Dawson. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. From, 1800 to master um and i you know kind of stopped but um i have been actually thinking about one day getting back into it uh my, myself but um yeah i mean i learned most of what i know uh through dawson uh you know my students uh you know all the time are like are you gonna stop mentioning it i'm like no i can't <laughs> i learned everything from him <laughs> i i use very strong player it's very intuitive player like he plays super fast as well so yeah, well, we're, you know, yeah, so, um, so look, uh, Vinay, we could definitely talk for, you know, a long time, but, um, you know, we, you know, we, but, um, so yeah, I, I guess obviously I wanted to highlight, uh, your new book, uh, how I became a chess grandmaster, uh, a little bit of, uh, kind of biography, um, also with, uh, you know, a lot of games, um, it does actually remind me of, uh, one of the first chess books I actually read, uh, which is actually Michael Adams' uh, book, uh, which was in a way somewhat similar. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, a game collection, a lot of uh, content uh, as well. Uh, we did actually have Michael Adams on the podcast. Uh, a few oh, sweet. Ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, it was a great uh, episode. Um, and actually, one thing that uh, Grand Grandmaster Bill Lombardi told me uh, years ago uh, before he unfortunately passed away, uh, was you should go over full games. Um, mm -hmm. And he actually suggested that uh, you take one top-level player. It doesn't have to necessarily be like top five in the world, but someone yeah. near the top, uh, you know, who somewhat matches your style and go go over all their games. So I was like, okay. And, th and this, by the way, was he told me at like 3 a.m. in Washington Square Park one night. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> And I was like, okay. And I literally got home. I was exhausted. It was 4 a.m. And I quickly looked at my bookshelf and I was like, oh, there's that Michael Adams book that my dad got me as a kid that I yeah. never really looked at. <laughs> um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll look at some of his games, you know, and, and, I, and I did actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I've learned a lot, you know, stylistically about openings, about middle games, end yeah. games, more importantly, the transitions. Um you know, I, 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 I've noticed that, you know, in a lot of games, he'll play E4, but not attack necessarily as quickly as, as some others might. Yeah, much uh, more positional and strategic player. Much more positional, strategic, uh, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and I learned a lot. Uh, but anyway, uh, this book, you know, at least on the surface, I 
in, in full transparency to our listeners, I've not read it yet, uh, but I will be getting it soon and uh, look forward to. But um, I, I was glancing uh, around the contents and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, what, what made you write this book? And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about it and why we should get it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, I started writing the book back in started 2021, really. Um, and for me, I think it was uh, I, I feel like I, I agree with what sort of uh, Lombardi said of like studying a strong player's games is really useful. It's just somebody who somebody whose games you identify with in some way. So like it doesn't have to be the absolute like world champion. Uh, for me in writing the book, though, I wanted to really share my story. Um, and so that's why it's about like uh book is about 300 pages. Um, Two thirds is mostly games and analysis. There's actually it opens with it opens and ends with losses. Um, mm-hmm. So like lost to David Bronstein, lost to Magnus Carlsen, and then a loss to, ends with a loss to Caruana. So like uh, probably like the three three players I played who were like world champion or had drawn a world championship match to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. But it. it the other one third of the book is about a hundred pages plus is like autobiography and sort of stories about like my life in chess. Um, and for me, I think the reason I wrote it was largely to like share my story. Um, I got stuck at multiple levels. So I, I made it to 2200 quickly, but then I got stuck there for two years. I got stuck at 2400 again, got stuck at 2450 for like each of those kind of plateaus was say like about, you know, two years or so, um, got stuck again at about 2550. And so like, that's kind of where I stopped playing as well at the end. Um, but I wanted to share sort of how I kind of got through those, those plateaus, um, how I thought about chess. There's like, uh, chapters on how I prepared for openings. Uh, some, some of the questions you were asking earlier. Um, I think the reason that like, you know, listeners or viewers might, might be interested in is partly like, just a, a look at how um, I tried to balance sort of chess and sort of life. Um, it's hard to do, like hard to dedicate yourself fully to chess while keeping a full academic workload or professional life. Um, and also then it, I, I think there's actually a ton of interesting games. So like uh, the games are not all like ones that I won. Um, there's plenty of losses, like I mentioned, but it sort of shares how I learned from those things um, wins or losses or draws. So, um, there's also a bunch of stories. I think in the free excerpt, you'll see, uh, some of the stories of like my life as a tournament director, uh, and some of the drama there, there's, um, <laughs> stories about like, uh, hanging out with some of the Wu-Tang clan at like a hip hop and chess event, uh, meeting some of the world champions like Anand, stuff like that. Um, you asked about short draws and s- some stuff that I saw there as far as like, my attitude towards it and then also uh sometimes what i saw with um offering to buy games at times that i saw from other players so um just some of my my life in chess basically amazing well i definitely look forward to taking a look at it reading it um you know and 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 saying the stories and 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 i like that you know honestly if you look at you know barnes and noble i talk about this all the time you know large majority of books or you know opening books yep you know winning yep. play winning with this opening winning with yeah. this opening uh you know etc um you know and they'll 
frankly, purposely leave out one line, you know, <laughs> and <then laughs> not win. Yeah. Uh, or, <laughs> the, or the one line that busted the gambit. So. You know, or they'll, they'll, you know, quickly put it in somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, or they'll, they'll show a win, but in a, in a small little sideline, it'll say, oh, this is actually the line that's like pretty good for black. <laughs> You know, um, I, I see that all the time. But um, anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely like, you know, the, the books like this that are, you know, a little bit sort of like memoir, but also, you know, a lot of actual education. Yeah, uh, that, I, I think that's that's the idea. So it's like um, it's it's based chronologically. So it starts from when I, I started playing then um, every chapter sort of has a recap too of like what I tried to learn or like how I learned. So books I used or patterns that I I taken away from some of my games. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's it is sort of a blend of memoir and sort of game collection. Yeah, and, and I I should now that I think of it, I'll also mention it. Also reminds me of the, the book Active Pieces by International Master Jay Bonin, who's been oh, okay, yeah, uh, on the okay. podcast uh, as okay. well. Who uh, I mean, everyone in America in the chess world yeah. knows about Jay Bone and Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> I played Jay 53 rated tournament games, by the way. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. Maybe even 54 now. I, I don't know. But <laughs> um, I have like four wins, 13 draws, and like 45 losses. Something Ooh, like that. Okay. 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 <laughs> Without looking at it. But uh, for, for sure. But um, anyway, I really want to thank you for taking some time to, you know, talk about a variety of subjects from chess growth, uh, you know, your career, confidence, improvement tips, uh, gambits and opening repertoire, uh, draw offers, ratings, uh, you know, coaching Sam Shanklin, um, of course, your new book, uh, How I Became uh, a Grandmaster. Um, the link to that book, of course, will be uh, in the show notes uh, as well. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, while you're on this special edition of the 250th episode of the premier chess podcast no i think i think that covers it um evan thanks for having me on um and yeah again uh uh for, for those out there who take a look at the book hope you guys enjoy it yeah my, my sincere pleasure uh great to you know virtually meet you i'm sure uh, one of these days hopefully uh you know we'll meet in person uh in the bay area or new york or somewhere i'm else. in new york but, every so often so yeah yep yeah let, let, let me know um, lastly, if anyone does want to reach out, learn, you know, a little bit more about the book, uh, connect for any other reason, is there a way people could get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so definitely, uh, I'm on some social platforms called Facebook, Twitter, whatnot. Um, my email address, BS, uh, bot, my last name, 02 at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out. Um, I think Evan and I connected sort of on Facebook messenger. Uh, we were already Facebook friends there, but, um, yeah, uh, Basically, I'm on most of the social platforms. All right. Well, I guess you're a Bay Area guy, so you're going to have to be. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much and look forward to uh, connecting soon. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Evan.